We at Global Nomad Hacks are peace heroes. By playing Peace and Harmony program during this episode, we help create one million pockets of peace by dissolving stress and tension. To be your own peace hero and get your own copy, go to peaceandharmonydownload.com. Welcome back to Global Nomad Hacks. My name is Dr. Heidi Forbes Uste, and we are so excited to introduce to you someone who is an old and dear friend, Soledad Fox Maura, who is the author and professor of Spanish and comparative literature at Williams College. But even more importantly to me, she is an old dear friend from my middle school days, who I recently (laughs) reconnected with when I was back in Barcelona about a month ago. And it just speaks so clearly to what global nomadism is, because when Soledad and I knew each other way back when, she was an expat coming from Spain to live in the U.S. So welcome, Soledad. Thank you, Heidi. Thank you so much for having me on the show. This is wonderful to hear you from so far away and to be a part of the global nomad experience. Well, you know, so that it's been such a treat for me reconnecting because it brings back so many memories of where part of my early passion about different cultures and different ways of being really came about. And it was from experiencing through friends like you, the, the fact that there was such a big difference. I want to start a little bit with actually going back to what was that experience for you? And sort of how did you end up in the US in the first place? Well, I hope that I don't give a really long-winded answer because those are huge questions. But to just give you, to try to go to the quick version, it was my mother who went to the United States. So I was not really involved in the decision-making. And I really grew up between the United States and Spain. And so I grew up bilingual and bicultural, and I didn't really know any other way of being, right? Because that was my life from the beginning. And I think I did, you know, I sensed that not everybody was being raised in the same way or had all that travel or, you know, different cultures involved in their lives. And I think that as a child, I may have been a little envious of those monocultural people because (laughs) somehow it seemed like their lives were simpler in a way that I found, you know, appealing as a child. And so I think that being in the States or being in Spain at those times, especially, you know, pre-internet, when a long distance phone call was still a big deal, it seemed like it might be nicer to just kind of belong and have one culture and one language. And that's something that over the years, and I mean, pretty quickly, I came to feel very differently about. So I think that that that's really how I transitioned from kind of being aware of having more than one culture and how that factored into my identity. And maybe from kind of being a little wary of that to just embracing it and, you know, trying to learn a as much as I could about many other different cultures and bring those into my life as well. Yeah, and you've done it so beautifully. And it really speaks to what you're doing now, as both an author, you've got a great book coming out soon, I can't wait to read it called Madrid Again, which is 
as described a coming-of-age book or, or novel. And there's so much interwoven to that, but I, I'm excited to hear sort of the real perspective of what that really meant to you. Can you talk a little bit about the novel so we have sort of a little teaser, maybe an understanding of what to expect? Sure. I'd love to talk about it. It's actually very exciting because it's my first novel. And so I've written other books. I've written biographies and literary studies, but this is my first novel. And so that's kind of a big deal for me. It feels like a very different experience, certainly a very different writing experience and a brand new way of putting myself out there. So it's exciting and a tiny bit scary. It's a book about, you know, there is a focus on these kind of bicultural, transcultural issues. It's a book about a family. And there are some elements that certainly seem to echo my life, but it's very much a novel. And it's kind of a wonderful, I don't know, I think of it kind of as a quilt. And I know that that might sound kind of corny in some way, but I just think of all these stories and scraps and meaningful connections to the past that I, you know, have had access to in my imagination that I've overheard that are, you know, borrowed from people in my family, from other families, and to have the opportunity to just kind of put them all together into this novel was a very meaningful experience for me. And I hope that, that other people will be able to identify with that kind of the magic, you know, of picking up these little threads of stories and tales and memories that, that really just get completely lost if we don't kind of curate them and capture them and put them down in some way. So I think I was really excited to give shape to a lot of those stories that just might have been lost if I hadn't written about them. So it's kind of like archaeology and preservation, or, you know, like a kind of museum curator in some way. That's the way I, I kind of look at it is, you know, that I chose these stories and have tried to bring them together in a way that's, you know, that's pleasant to read and the hopefully the reader will identify with the main character and how she has to kind of dig into the past to search for her identity in the present and be able to build her own life and and move on into the future. I love the way you describe it as a quilt. And I think, you know, even when we met in Barcelona recently, I really appreciated the way that you were so passionate about sharing the history and sharing sort of an understanding of why or how things sort of have evolved in Spain and sort of the history of weaving language and weaving culture and all of these different pieces. So I'm excited to read your book. And I think that for particularly oh, for, you. yeah, particularly for our audience who are third culture kids or third culture families, I think there's a lot to be learned from just understanding a combination of your heritage, but also sort of, you know, how that tells your future story and how that determines yeah. where you go. Absolutely. And I think that that's third culture kids. And I think for third culture kids, for for so many immigrants, for, you know, for so many people who are just, you know, living all over the globe in different situations and who have moved or whose grandparents moved or whose parents moved, there is 
you know, that when you don't have a kind of geographical continuity, whatever the family museum is, and I mean that, you know, in a very, very loose sense, I'm not talking about works of art, I'm talking about, you know, oral histories or stories of, of you know, whatever little threads you might have to hang on to, that family history is, you know, very often only exists in the imagination of the people who are left from that family, right? And so that, so their whole history in another country or in another language may not have a geographical or a physical space or, you know, point to connect with. So I think in that sense, I think literature is so, is so important. I mean, literature and language because they're ways of connecting us back to places that, you know, that are kind of can be lost in physically, but also in time. You know, when we we saw each other in Barcelona, and that was really special. And it was very special for me to be there in general because my grandmother was from there. My mother spent a lot of her life growing up there, and I can go. You know, I can go there now. Well, maybe not right now, but I was there a month ago, and yet I will never know the Barcelona that my grandmother knew or that my mother knew, right? Because you can't go back in time. So Mm -hmm. there's this kind of wonderful opportunity, I think, through literature and through the kind of research that I do. I can't go back in time, but I can pretend to. And somehow that's, it's very appealing to me. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's nothing like a good book where you, you feel like you're sort of transported in time or in space to really experience something. And you did previous works, for example, you're, in 2018, you did a biography of, I don't know if I can pronounce it correctly, because my Spanish is horrible, but Jorge Semprun Exil, is that right? Or so, Jorge Semprun. Jorge Semprun. Okay. Very good. Your pronunciation is very good. Oh, thank and, you. <laughs> and the exile is part of the title. Oh, okay. You, yes. So that's right. So I think that you know, the, the connection is, I mean, what I'm really interested in is life writing. And I think that under that kind of broader umbrella of life writing, there's biography, there's auto fiction, there's memoir, there's, you know, letters and diaries. So all of these genres are really fascinating to me. And so after he so Jorge Semprum's biography was the second biography that I have written. And this novel that's coming out in November is actually something that I started many, many years ago. With all my other writing deadlines, I was only able to write it in, in little kind of fits and starts and wasn't actually able to kind of put it all together until last year. So I think that in a way, my academic research and my work on other people has really influenced you know, my own writing and, and my own desire to, to write fiction. Yeah, I would imagine that, that that's that's absolutely true. And I can't wait to see sort of what you come up with after we get through this experience now, because again, you can't go back in time and we're all going to experience some kind of a transformation. And whether you're listening to this before, during, whatever, of COVID after, our whole perception of what each city is going to be changed. And even today, it's changed. 
I'm curious, I want to talk a little bit about you work as a professor in Spanish and comparative literature at Williams College, which is based in the US. And and yet you've figured out ways to, you know, to span that as well by teaching when we saw each other, you were teaching in Barcelona, your mother is still based in Madrid. Is this something that you know, how do you feel that that is something that feeds your need to have a foot in both places? I think that's something that a lot of third culture kids or global nomads, they feel like they need an anchor in sort of their two lives. And how has that played out for you? Well, that's a really, that's a really interesting question. And I think that the way you put it, how has that played out is exactly, you know, the only kind of honest answer I can give is that this is the way it's evolved. You know, I, I never had a master plan. Mm-hmm. Of, this is where I'm going to be, you know, this is how I'm going to be moving around the globe in the next 15 years or the next 20 years. It was very much my, you know, literature was my passion. And I was very interested in doing a comparative literature degree after I studied at Sarah Lawrence College, and I had amazing professors there and did a lot of writing. And it was just kind of a natural step for me to go and, and do a PhD in comparative literature. After that, I also, um, French is another one of my languages. And I was also, you know, given access to French since I was very, very young. So I can almost say that I was raised trilingual. And those Spanish and English are definitely kind of Spanish is the mother tongue and um, English and French are, you know, up there too. So I think that as somebody who teaches comparative literature and who is also kind of covering contemporary Spain and contemporary Spanish literature and culture in a small town in New England at a liberal arts college, I feel that it's very important for me to be really connected to my subject matter, right? So this is, this is something that is very, has always been very exciting to me to come back to Madrid when the semester ends in May and go to the book fair in Madrid, which won't happen this year. At least it won't happen in its, you know, normal kind of platform, which is in person in the park. They take over the Retiro Park and there's a beautiful book fair here, the Feria del Libro. And just kind of cruising that book fair to look for new materials and to look for new things I can teach. And my students read everything in the original. They read, you know, in the advanced literature and culture classes, they read everything in Spanish. So being able to provide a kind of bridge for them and for myself is really important to me. And at the same time, the students come to Spain on study abroad programs or do MAs here after they graduate or come for the summer or lived in Mexico. So I think that by nature, what I do is very international and to keep things fresh and to keep courses exciting and to keep developing new courses movement has been, you know, very much a part of that for me. And at the same time, you know, movement and and then not moving because when I'm there for the semester, which is, you know, most years, I'm just, I'm on sabbatical this semester. But when I'm there, I'm really there. 
I mean, I don't normally ever leave for Europe in the middle of the semester. I'm there. It's a very, for me, teaching there and whatever time I have for research is very intensive. And when I'm there, Williamstown is my home. It's a beautiful place. You're so you're so lucky to have that. That's a nice place to have an anchor in the U.S. <laughs> Certainly, it is, it's such a beautiful place. Yeah. Yes, it's very beautiful and very, you know, culturally dynamic. In the you know, for a very small town, it just it has the Clark Museum. It's you know, right next to North Adams with Mass Mocha. The Williams College Museum is incredible. You know, in the summer, there's the theater festival. All of these institutions are, you know, right now are in some kind of hiatus, as most all colleges and universities are. And we'll have to see how the next few months go. But I'm sure that they're all going to thrive again. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll all see what happens on the other end remains to be seen. But I'm sure that it will be different and beautiful in, in many different ways. One of the things that I would love to hear your perspective on, because it's always been amazing to me, the first Spanish that I really heard was you and your mother speaking together, which was Madrid Spanish. And mm-hmm. then when you go to Mexico, you'll get a very different Spanish. And I was you know, recently in Argentina and Uruguay. There, it's very different Spanish. And sort of the, you know, a lot of people think of, you know, even with English, you have sort of British English, you have South African English, you have... Australian English, but those little subtleties, I felt like they were much, much stronger or much starker in Spanish. And how does that dictate the way that you teach and sort of the respect for the different cultures within the language? Well, I think that, you know, there's, it's absolutely true that there are many different kinds of Spanish. And so I think that's so important to recognize. And at the same time, I think that language is constantly evolving you know, at any language, right? It's, if it's a living language, it's changing all the time. So, you know, it's quite challenging, you know, to keep up with languages and to keep up with nuances and to keep up with slang. And obviously, you know, students who are going to do a semester abroad or a year abroad or an internship somewhere, they come back from Argentina or from Mexico or from Spain, they're going to come back with very contemporary language, right? Because of they're going to be hanging out with people their age. And so that's the kind of language that's, that's really fun for them, you know, as they become fluent. And I think that the differences are very important, but I also think that there's just such a kind of, um, you know, nice feeling when you're able to speak with somebody in the same language, even if you're not from the same part of the world. So I think that there's great distinctions, but I also think that there's really important kind of connectivity that comes from being able to relate to people in the same language. And I mean, I've spent a lot of time in Mexico and one of the most fascinating things for me on every visit was the differences in the language. And I think, you know, for most English speakers, for most Americans, you know, going to England for the first time and, you know, everybody's, you know, in the queue or the lorry or people are, are having a kip or, you know, all these things are fun. I mean, the, the differences are something that, that are stimulating and it's fun to, to see and to hear your own language that you share. 
used in so many different ways because it has, you know, a different history and different influences behind it. You know, there's certainly no problem in terms of linguistic problems. People from different Spanish-speaking countries can communicate perfectly well, even though there are so many different words and expressions and intonations and, you know, within Spain and within a lot of Latin American countries, there are also different languages that are, you know, that have nothing to do with Spanish. Like Basque has nothing to do with any, I don't think they've been able to trace its roots yet, right? It's a very unique language. It doesn't look, it has nothing to do with Spanish. So I think that the whole, you know, that linguistic complexity can be really fun to discover. I don't see it as as something that's divisive at all. It's really a, a wealth of differences. Yeah, it's really beautiful. And I'm curious for as as someone that loves to learn different parts of other languages, I generally get myself to a competency where I can my fluidity is very poor grammar, but I can communicate anything in a lot of different languages. <laughs> So I can order food. And what I was going to ask you was actually, what's a good base to start from? If someone wants to pick up Spanish or, I mean, obviously it's a Latin language. Do people even study Latin anymore or what's a good place to start from? Some people do study Latin, but, you know, and I think that the classics are, are, I think students who study classics, very often classics become their favorite subject. So, you know, from I think that there's a lot to be said for studying Latin and Greek and for studying classical texts. And certainly, I think if we were all better versed in those classical texts, we would probably understand the world much better (laughs) than we do. But I think that for learning Spanish, you know, there's just have to kind of jump right in. And I think that, you know, I wouldn't say recommend saying, oh, no, you must learn Latin first, although I don't want my colleagues in classics to hear me say that. But I really think you could just jump right in. And one of the great things about the internet and you know all digital platforms that we have available now is that there are so many, you know, series and all these Netflix series that they have subtitles, but a lot of my students just love these series, you know, and, and they'll come up to me and say, Have you seen Cable Girls and Cable Girls is Las Chicas del Cable. Oh, I love and Cable it's, Girls. Yes. And <laughs> it's a, a series, right, about the first Spanish telephone operators and the beginning of the Spanish telephone company. And so I don't have to press my students into watching this. It's not homework. It's something that they do in their spare time. And then they write to me and say, have you seen this season? Because, you know, I just love it. You know, before I think when we were in middle school and had to learn a language, there was a kind of a antiquated language lab, right? Where we <laughs> yes. went to hear with headphones. And I mean, I kind of loved it. I actually kind of loved those language labs. I remember for French, there was this book that we used called Suivez la Piste. <laughs> and I was kind of fascinated by it. That was just kind of a part of a very small part of our learning process, the language lab. And now, you know, basically like the whole world is a language lab. You know, if you wanted to, you could be listening to your target language 24 hours a day and, you know, listening to the news in that language and 
talking to people in that language and, and watching all kinds of series and, you know, sports and you could do everything in that language. So I think that there's, it's just very accessible now. I think it's a great time to learn a language. I know that a lot of people in their self-isolation are taking advantage of some extra time they might have to learn a language, or at least that's what they say they're doing. And I hope they're doing it because it's really a good time. It's not a good time for a lot of things, but it's a great time for that. Yeah, I've heard there's a lot of people Duolingo binging. That's, that's yeah. You've got well, Netflix binging well, and Duolingo binging. <laughs> yes, I hadn't heard the Duolingo binging. It's it's great. It's a great phrase. Yeah, I'm sure there's other, like you said, the Spanish series. I love the Spanish series. There's so many great ones out there, and it's funny. I mean, with for me, French is my language that of the Latin languages that I really feel comfortable with. But I find that just the melody of the Spanish, I feel like I understand a lot of it. And it's just enough with the subtitles that you can sometimes even look away and feel like you're following the conversation anyway, the more you watch the shows. Well, I have a sense, Heidi, that you're going to be a Spanish speaker in the end. I sure hope so. I love learning new languages. I think it's in the cards. Yeah. And I'm glad that you love the the way it sounds. And you know, you speak, I mean, you speak quite a few languages. And you say, you know, that you may not know the grammar or, you know, may not be able to throw out an imperfect subjunctive, but that you can communicate and socialize and, you know, make your way in that language. And I really think ultimately that's, that's everyone's goal, right? I mean, nobody wants to learn the language to pass the test, <laughs> you know, the chapter four test or people want to learn the language or any, you know, languages so that they can communicate and so that they can experience life in that language. And so I think that, you know, you've really got the right idea there. And which doesn't mean that my future students should listen to this and think that they're not going to have homework because they are. But, you know, their goal is to is to speak. And I think that learning a language can take a long time. It's a, it's a lot of hard work, right? If you really want to want to be fluent, which you know, when you get to that fun part where you can you can just participate and you understand what everybody's saying and you can come up with you know good observations and insights and express them and i think that one of the the big motivators and and this is i heard a colleague of mine say this several years ago and it just really stuck with me it's it's a very kind of simple thought but i think it it's really exciting and it's that when you learn another language, it's not that you learn to be yourself in that new language, it's that you actually have the chance to become someone else, right? Mm. So there's another part of you that you may not even know about that begins to emerge in this new language. And so that's really exciting, right? Because you're packing, you know, depending on how many languages you learn and cultures you, you really come into close contact with you're packing more lives into your own life. And so I think that, and I think that students, you know, language students really have a sense of that and that's what's attractive and it's what's exciting, but then there's hard work until you get to that point and not everybody can make it a priority. And, but I think that for people who do make it a priority, you know, the payoff is just huge and it's not just in terms of, you know, professional possibilities or, you know, culture, it's also about yourself. And it's about, 
you know, discovering that side of yourself that you may not have known about until you opened your mouth and started speaking this other language. It's so true. It's sort of that magical moment where you wake up and you realize you've dreamed in another language and your whole dream was in that language. It's it's, it's an awakening. And I think right now we're sort of, we're in that place where we're sort of, I, I've been describing it as we're in that chrysalis stage where, you know, there's just a lot of transformation going on and some of it hurts and some of it, we have no idea what kind of beautiful butterfly or moth or whatever it is, is going to come out at the end. But that transformation, this is an opportunity to feed that transformation and to to really nurture what's happening inside the chrysalis. So when we come out, maybe we're speaking Spanish, or maybe we're, you know, deciding to go travel to another place. So I'm curious, after you come out of this chrysalis, where do you think you will be? Well, I don't know when this chrysalis will end, but I would very much like to be back in Williamstown sometime in the next very few months or several weeks. And I'd like to be there and just kind of regroup. And, you know, I'm very eager to not only see myself kind of go back from my sabbatical and into a semester, but also to see students be able to resume their studies. I think that, you know, as a professor and uh, as a professor who's seen the semester just kind of be totally transformed, uh, you know, just instantaneously in a very, you know, these huge decisions have been made and, and students have been sent home. Most students have been sent home. Some students are still living on campuses. And I think for all of them, it's really, really challenging and really disconcerting. And to, you know, for, for the seniors, it's very sad. Mm. For the first years, it's very sad. I mean, everybody has just had their lives kind of turned over, you know, everybody in the world. And, you know, here in Spain, I think that I'm really, my heart is most with the elderly because they have just had a, you know, very, very, very difficult experience with this, with this pandemic. And I think about them all the time here. And when I think about the States, I I think about my students and Mm -hmm. um, I don't know why, but I guess it's because my, my professional base and because, you know, it's higher education is something that's so important in, you know, everywhere and in particular in the States and people, you know, prepare for so many years to get into the right institution. And, and it's such a huge part of life there. And so I just really hope that we can go online teaching is, is a big thing and it'll probably be with us forever in, in many ways. But I also, you know, really hope we can go, in my case, back to that liberal arts model of the small classes and, you know, being together, especially after this very difficult time, if, yeah. you know, when we get to that point. I think it'll it'll be very important, you know, to to be together again and and to feel that human connection. I think it's such an important part of learning. Yeah, and your students are lucky to have you. I mean, I, I think one of the things that Thank is <laughs> so magical about the liberal arts experience is that you have professors who are really passionate about teaching, and you're clearly one of those. So your students are very lucky. Well, thank you. And thank you. we hope you make it back 
soon and uh, everybody is safe and healthy. Thank you so much for joining me today, Solida. This has been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Heidi. These are the questions are really interesting. These are the kind of questions that I could just, you know, kind of talk about all the time. So, and and not everybody asks. So it's really been a treat. Well, we look forward to more. And whether it's in Madrid, Barcelona, or Williamstown, I'm sure we'll catch up again. Thank you, Global Nomads, for joining us. And if you want to find Soledad's book, it's going to be coming out this fall. It's called Madrid Again. And in the meantime, you can always check out her links in the show notes to uh, to find her. And it's been such a pleasure having you join us today. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and share it with your friends. It's always a pleasure to have you with us. And until next time, bye-bye for now.